There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm exposed here. I'm on the outside of the station, and there's nothing between me and the earth except maybe some wires or a sharp edge that could slice my spacesuit. Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson. And I'm Ian Morris. Later on, we're grilling Three's decision to trial ad blocking at the network level. Now, we have talked about this before when it was proposed, but it's actually happening now as a full-on trial um, for at least a day anyway. And we've also got some great news in the field of British virtual reality and some ferociously interesting feedback from you guys as well. But first... Shooting movies not always called the easiest of tasks, or at least not shooting a good one. Then filming in IMAX with its much larger cameras traditionally can make this harder, and doing that in 3D complicates things even further. Now, Tony Myers is a Canadian filmmaker perhaps best known for her work creating these 3D IMAX movies, except she does them in space. One of these films, 2002's Space Station 3D, documented the building of the International Space Station in orbit. Hubble 3D documented repair missions of the orbiting telescope and showcased some of the powerful imagery that it has been capturing during its lifetime. But this week, Maya's latest film hits screens in the UK. It's called A Beautiful Planet. It's the first of her films to be shot in digital IMAX 3D, and in addition to showcasing some breathtaking real-time orbiting views of our world from space, including the north-south divide of the careers at night, raging thunderstorms uh, going across a whole continent, at least to my eyes, and how bright London is compared to Manchester after the sun has set, the film also takes audiences into everyday life on the space station, from having haircuts, to how to get out of a spacesuit suit using only your legs, to sleeping in zero-g, making an espresso, having an eye exam, you know, the kind of things you expect people to be doing on space stations. I wanted to find out how technology made all this possible and how things have changed in the 30 years between the first film being shot in space back in 1984 and today. So a couple of days after seeing the film's European premiere at London's Science Museum, I'm in Soho in London with Tony Myers. Thank you so much, Nate. It's great to be back. I used to live here in the late 60s and early 70s, so I'm enjoying being back in Soho. And I started by asking her why now was the right time to make a film like A Beautiful Planet. We had made our second film in space called Blue Planet, uh, came out in 1990. And uh, that was about not only human impacts on Earth, but also natural uh, forces of change. And uh, I thought after Hubble, actually, that it was about time we went back again and took stock about what had happened, what's happening on Earth now, and what, had, what changes had happened since uh, 1990. So that was the origin of it. What inspired you to embark on making these, these kind of films that you, you've become so well known for? The history really uh, lies in one very special person who, whose name is Graham Ferguson. And Graham is the co-inventor of IMAX, the whole thing. 
uh, the projectors and the cameras, and the and he's the co-founder of the company, original company. And uh, I started working with Graham before he invented IMAX. And then once IMAX came on the scene, it very was it was very apparent it was experiential cinema, and you used that great big beautiful picture to transport people to places they couldn't normally go and put them right in the scene, unlike television or conventional films. So it was Graham who really founded the the space unit. Um, he knew that we should be trying to get cameras to space. We all thought we should, but Graham really led the charge, and um, uh, we that led to our making an arrangement with NASA back in 1984 and um, partnering with Lockheed Martin and the Smithsonian to do the early space films. Now, IMAX cameras have been notoriously large and heavy uh, compared to some of their modern cousins like the uh, the Red Epics and, and so forth. Has, has that changed now to make shooting productions as ambitious as this less problematic? When uh, I took the proposal to NASA for this film, they said, that's great, but you can't fly IMAX cameras or film uh, to the space station anymore. And I kind of knew that because there was no shuttle. The shuttle has retired, and that was the only consistent up and down mass space uh, for cargo. So we elected, we had no choice but to go digital. And of course, with that came uh, compression in size, which is wonderful, um, a definite disappearance of noise, which is also wonderful because the old cameras sounded like a lawnmower in the space shuttle. With the extended storage um, capability of digital cameras, we had 10 times the resources that we ever dreamed of having with film. So it, it was no longer a situation of take one. So it took the pressure off the shooters to be able to try something again if they didn't like it the first time. I haven't even got to the biggest uh, advantage of digital. I had to ask, what's the biggest advantage of digital? For us on this film, the wonder of the digital camera, a uh, cameras, because we flew two, was the dynamic range and uh, the capability of capturing night scenes on the earth, which we could never see, uh, we could never capture with IMAX film because it was too slow. So, so now we could see aurora, we could see stars in the sky, we can see the city lights all over the world, and it opens up a whole new dimension of the earth that we never saw. Because at night, you see with the city lights, you can see where humanity is, and you can see where the population has gone, and where it congregates, and uh, where there's a lot of power being used and no power being used. It's, it's a very, very graphic way of looking at things. I knew there was footage in this film that had never been seen before, in IMAX or at all, anywhere. Tony tells me some of this came from the GoPro action cameras astronauts wear on their suits when performing external spacewalks. We went out on a spacewalk via uh, NASA GoPro cameras that are attached just to the wrists of the people doing the spacewalk. And they're really there as engineering cameras just to document their, their trips. They're not there as cinema cameras. So the yield of them for a cinematographer or a movie maker is about 30 seconds per two hours of coverage. But boy, the 30 second bits that I was able to find going through that stuff 
were really amazing to me. I thought that put you right out there. I think particularly what those scenes do is, that, I mean, I don't want to say they give you a sense of vertigo, but on the, on, the, on the IMAX screen in particular, they definitely give you a real sense of almost physical unease in a good way, but that sort of, wow, I'm literally dangling above the earth. I'm exposed here. I'm on the outside of the station, and there's nothing between me and the earth except maybe some wires or a sharp edge that could slice my space suit and the crews that have seen it the two that are two crews who's who uh butch and terry who did those spacewalks they said oh we've never seen it like that it's exactly what you experience out there they were absolutely bowled over by them it must be quite a challenge to direct a film from the earth when it's being shot in space how do you how do you do that how do you plan that how do you deliver on that that's a really good question but actually it is not a challenge and that is because we wouldn't have a movie at all if it weren't for the astronauts who shot it. And obviously, James and I... That's director of photography, space. James Nyhouse. Um, and so we train them to be our directors and cinematographers. And we do that over a period of uh, several months, a uh, total of about 25 to 30 hours. Uh, and we equip them with all the knowledge they need to make their own film there. And that includes lighting and operation of the cameras, recording sound, directing their fellow crewmates in action scenes inside. Um, and we also develop, well, I had a laundry list of scenes, that um, earth scenes that, that I was targeting, but also generic inside scenes. And we encourage them to use their, they're very creative people. and we encourage them to use that creativity. So we're not trying to manage every single thing that they shoot, um, because that would be very stultifying and it would come back kind of stiff. And they also like to play tricks on you. They also like to, uh, they have great senses of humor. So they love to surprise you. And so we kind of turn them loose. But, but before they go, as the last thing they do in their training is that they shoot their own home movie in the simulators. James says, okay, now off you go, and they have to like their scene, they have to choose who's going to be in it and direct them, direct the action, and record the sound, and then we put that up on an IMAX screen in their faces, and that is the best teaching tool that you can imagine, because it's like putting your own home movies up 60 feet by 80 feet. So, you know, if you, if you haven't got it in focus, you really see it then. We'll return to Tony in a few minutes and hear about unexpected problems, how to download vast quantities of 5K resolution 3D IMAX data from space, and how supercomputers contributed to parts of the film. Now, Ian, it's time to get to the news of the week. It has been a slow, quiet, and relatively uninteresting week in Ooh. terms of British technology. Well, they have they have reinvigorated the telephone calling preference service, haven't they, to allow people to uh, re-register their disdain for uh, spam calling. Yes, you can now text for the cost of 12 or 10 pence. Yes, which has a... caused a furore in its own right, hasn't it? I do find myself wanting to raise an eyebrow at people who made a formal complaint to Ofcom saying, this is not free to opt out, I was charged 10 pence. Yes. Because surely the time it takes to make that complaint is not worth any more than 10p. But still, 
that thing happened, but I didn't think it was very interesting, so we're not talking about it. <laughs> Instead, we are talking about three. Now, we talked a while ago, several weeks ago, in fact, that three, the UK, the UK's, I wouldn't want to say one of the smallest, but certainly one of the scrappiest. They're kind of like the British T-Mobile. Um, now that uh, there is no T-Mobile in Britain anymore. Exactly. In that three likes to stir things up a little bit. They like to do things um, that maybe some of the bigger guys didn't do or couldn't do um and in this case it's going to do a one-day trial of network level ad blocking now for those of you who have not been paying attention to the internet over the last year in particular ad blocking is the blocking of ads that's essentially what three is going to do it's going to <laughs> block ads but instead of blocking them in a web browser or in an app as is the case with most ad blocking three is going to block it before it even gets to your phone. And it says that it wants to do this as a way of saving data, so not charging the customer huge exorbitant fees, downloading large flash-based video adverts that are irrelevant, battery-draining, and annoying. Instead, they're going to say, nope, none of that's getting to you at all. Even in an app, it's not getting to you. We're going we're gonna to detect, and there's a question there, how they detect, because we assume it's deep packet inspection from the company Shine, which is providing the technology to block things at the network level, it's just going to detect what's an ad and you're not going to see it. Ian, good news or bad? Uh, livid, mate. Livid. Livid. Explain why you're livid. Well, I, I, I find that this is a... I think there's a lot of different angles you can take on this. I'm livid uh, because I make my living from publishers who make their money from advertising. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, display ads are not the only way of doing advertising. They're not the only way to make money. But they still make up a, a decent percentage of the free content that most of us are happy to read online. Um, and I, I, whilst I can tolerate the idea of people choosing to use ad blockers, because I think ultimately, you know, there's not much I can say or do that's going to change that, and it's a reality, I find the idea of um, networks deciding to do that extremely worrying i mean this is a, a, a if you take it to the very extreme it's a net neutrality issue um because the network is choosing what you can and can't see now okay those are adverts and they're not no one's going to lose any sleep about not being able to see them i suppose but even so it's uh it's a thin end of the wedge as i believe they say um and that worries me slightly does it worry you nate it does again worry me, but I mean, and I, I have two trains of thoughts running simultaneously um, over this issue. The, the one train is that from the perspective of being a, a journalist, be a publisher uh, and somebody who is, um, you know, has has built a career as you have and as many people listening may have off the back of providing content, which is consumed for free and supported by adverts. There's another train of thought, however, which is the part of me that uses an ad blocker. And I don't, I don't pretend that I, I, I don't use ad blockers, but I'm extremely selective and I, I have a selective list where they get added to the block if their ads are egregious and awful. Yeah. And I also have a personal philosophy, which has happened on visiting Wired.com, the New York Times, where, and Forbes, in fact, which yes. obviously you write for, where if you access it with an ad blocker, they don't give you the content. And some people are livid about this. And I think, you know what? Fine. Well, fair I mean, enough. This is the thing you see. If you if you aren't seeing ads on a site, then you are basically you're not really a customer. You don't have any value to that site. And that is a that is a hard business fact. If you're going to start blocking ads, then you're basically not 
monetizable. And to that extent, why bother providing you content? Yeah. Now, there's a deeper aspect to all of this, of course, which is that um, this is one network doing it and it's doing it on a trial. It's doing it, I still think, that largely as a, something of a publicity stunt um, because they're small enough to get away with it, but um, significant enough to get noticed if they do it well. The fact is, we know that O2 um, said they were looking at uh, network level blocking. We know EE, the biggest network, also said it was looking at network blocking. But then about two or three years ago, and th this according to a, a story in Ars Technica, um, that I was reading earlier this week, a French ISP tried doing this, not a mobile ISP, just a French ISP tried doing this, and the government stepped in and said, oi, no, you can't do that. And they were told to uh, to stop it. So it, I do think they will, they will run into giant regulatory interference. I oh, think yeah. Brussels will absolutely take notice. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. I, because ba I just can't see how that would be something that the EU would tolerate. I just don't think it's acceptable to be um, manipulating web traffic in that way. Well, the question would be one possibly born out of privacy, because in order to detect what this traffic is, because they're not doing it through a browser where basically the content is loaded and then is just not displayed, they're having to look at what the traffic is before it even gets to you. And that's done usually by something called deep packet inspection, which my favorite uh, analogy or metaphor or how we want to put this for something like this is the idea of the post office looking in all your posts to see whether something is uh, is nefarious or not before putting it through your letterbox. It's and, and I think that we could run into issues like that. And we have seen that happen in the past. And there have been a number of companies that have tried using deep packet inspection for everything from anti-piracy to, um, you know, or, or to even even assist with adverts, for example, tracking you around the web as an ad network. So like Google does with cookies, it could do at the ISP level. And they've all come into some form of resistance one way or another over the last 10 years. And I just don't think history has shown enough examples of things like this not being held up at either the regulatory stage or quite simply the public outcry stage. And I think with this in mind, what's likely to happen is as publishers are getting more and more aware, and we're seeing the likes of Wired, Condé Nast, um, the New York Times, Forbes, and, and many others basically say, if you are running an ad blocker, then we're not giving you content. Mm. It will get to the point where if a user has blindly opted into having ads blocked at the network level, they can't simply just disable it on their phone very easily. Oh. They're going to have to call up the ISP and say, okay, can you please not, can you please put wired on a, on a whitelist? And that's going to be far too difficult to manage. And this whole stunt would have well, fallen on its face. But at least they'd have got the publicity for trying. And that's kind of why I think that there's something of a PR aspect to all this. Well, I, I mean, I, 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 I could see that. I would, I'd hope that they wouldn't try and do PR on something like this. But hey, you know, that's PR, isn't it? Sometimes it does end up being like that. And I can tell you this, if I was running a website um, of my own, then uh, I would block everyone from three. If that was the decision that three took that they were going to just you know block every ad on every site that didn't pay them to be included, uh, then I would block three customers, of which I am one. Yes. So that would be amusing, wouldn't it? I'd be blocking myself. Yeah. Um, but I, I just can't see, I can't see a reason that this would work. And well, I can certainly see a reason to keep our eye on it. Now, this trial, it's going to be over a 24-hour period for three customers, or rather that is customers of three, not for three customers. That would be a pretty awful trial <laughs> for 
for a day between June 13th and June 20th. And it will, the network says, contact customers to ask them to sign up for the trial. So look out for that if you're a three customer and let us know your thoughts. Podcast at natelangson.com. Well, the other story we wanted to get to quickly this week, and it is going to be a brief one, is that Brian May, who is obviously of Queen fame and astrophysicist, has launched his own VR viewing headset called Owl VR. And I was curious about why the name was chosen, but if you look at this thing, it does kind of look like an owl's face. If you if you Google Google Brian May Owl VR, have a quick look on your phone or whatever device you're currently in front of and take a look. It's a 25 pound piece of plastic that you can put a phone into and use as a VR headset. And it's sort of like if you assume Google made the Google Cardboard out of plastic and called it Google Plastic, that's sort of what this is, except that it's from Brian May, the guitarist of Queen, and it's called Owl VR. Thus is several stages more interesting. Um, but it is still a piece of nicely molded plastic that you slot a phone into. Um, Ian, you didn't seem to be exploding with the uh, juices of joy when I mentioned we were talking about this. Do you have a reason why? Do you not think well, that Brian May can lead us into a future of VR with a piece of plastic? Uh, no, I don't. I, I, I No one uh, loves Brian May and Queen. Well, I mean, lots of people love them as much as I do. That's patently untrue. Uh, but uh, I I love Brian May and I love Queen and I, I'd, I wish the man every success. Um, I just don't think he's going to find any success with a shonky VR headset, which, as you said, really just does what Google Cardboard does, but worse. And uh, also seems to be extremely expensive. Well, you say that, but it's not that much more expensive than Google's Cardboard. They're well, gonna... That's because Google's Cardboard is extremely expensive. You have to make a return on something. And if this uh, is a way of well, getting people to... Google, you don't, because you're probably trying to promote your own... Uh, you know your own VR service cardboard as it's called confusingly I can't help but think that this is actually the kind of thing that will find some degree of success because it's the sort of product that's very easy to buy as a present everyone realistically who's ever likely to be bought one of these probably has a smartphone Um, it's very easy to market because Brian May is on the box (laughs) and you could totally see this being sold in the likes of Joy and you know other sort of novelty gift centers train stations last minute gifts in a box great for christmas i actually think that of all these things this possibly could work even more successfully as a way of getting people to take the first step into vr than google's cardboard which is still inexplicably very difficult to find yes um i mean nothing about google uh, and maybe we should do a special on google one day because nothing about google makes sense to me i don't know how the company's still running i think it's one of those shoddily run organizations in the universe um but i i don't know did you see the um the opportunity to pre-order the uh one plus vr headset basically it was free for the first thirty thousand, um and you had to pay shipping of like two quid or something i did that um so if you could get something like that that was around 25 pounds that would make a lot of sense wouldn't it because that's a much more practical vr solution but it does not have the queen guitarist on the box no he's an iconic fellow by name by appearance and put the two and two together I mean, that's that's plastic's going to sell I've got, itself. I've got to say, mate, I don't think you're right at all. I, don't, I think you're really over-anticipating the capability of Brian May to sell things. Uh, it's more that I'm anticipating the ability for people who have been given a license to use Brian May's name on a box, <laughs> their ability to sell stuff during uh, uh, the, the VR 
rush that we potentially... I'm going I'm to be honest, mate. I don't think they've got a damn clue what they're doing. I, th- I, th- I think if you were going to go to anyone, you'd be better off going to someone who has some sort of tangible connection to technology. It's not his first time. He, re- he released a um, uh, one of those stereoscopic Victorian card things about five or six years ago. Oh, no. How did that sell? It's a good question. <laughs> I, I don't have those figures well. to hand, but it was called the Owl VR Viewer back then, or Owl Stereo Viewer, I think. So the brand is in its second incarnation, which is more than Will I Am can say for any of his products. <laughs> uh, sorry, I've had. <laughs> oh, Will I Am. Stop making crap. Podcast at natelangson.com. Let us know your view on Brian. <laughs> I was going to say Brian May's Owl. Just on Brian May's. No, you should do intentions with this podcast at natelangson.com we now return to tony myers talking about her new film a beautiful planet when we left her we were learning about how astronauts make home movies in nasa's flight simulators in order to expose them to what footage will look like on an imax screen Before I ask her about how supercomputers played a key role in making this film and how you physically get data from IMAX cameras down from space, I asked her what surprising footage came from the ISS crew. There was quite a few surprises, but um, one of the most amazing was Samantha getting uh, Butch out of the hard upper torso after his spacewalk. That was just a lovely moment, you know, that, that... you're just not expecting. You know, she's trying to push push him out of the suit with her feet. And uh, that people love that. And the other, I had asked for, uh, please shoot a scene depicting your c- a celebration of a holiday. I didn't say anything more than that. And that's when we got Santa's milk and cookies in the airlock. Floating in the, in the middle of the airlock yes. is... Yeah, they were, they were zero G cookies and a pouch of uh, milk uh, with Santa written on it, floating in the middle of the airlock. And that was a wonderful surprise. Now, I know supercomputers have, have played uh, a big role um, in producing this film, and I've, I've heard the result described as the cinematic presentation of scientific data, which is a lovely, lovely sentence. I'm curious, what does that mean um, in the context of A Beautiful Planet? Um, we have a magical team of wizards in uh, at the University of Illinois in Champaign, Illinois. That's where the super supercomputing center is, and that's what they do. That they they take scientific data and um, they create motion and imaging with that data, different kinds of data. We first worked with them on Hubble 3D, and in this uh, film we have two flights through the Milky Way. One at the beginning, where you fly in through the Milky Way to find to locate our sun, uh, where it is on an outer arm, and uh, the at the end of the film, we fly in the opposite direction back out from Earth into the Milky Way, out to the Kepler region, where the Kepler satellite has detected many exoplanets. Everything you see inside the Milky Way, not outside, but inside the Milky Way, is actually real scientific data. It's not made up CGI, and I really want people to know that because people are kind of inured to think everything. Oh, well, they did that with special effects. It's not special effects. It's actually real stars in their real positions from actual star catalogs. It's not 
imagined or we think this or that. They have real names and real positions in 3D space, and that's what we do. We fly through the 3D space uh, exactly as those stars exist, and uh, that's billions and billions of stars. We're traveling at, you know, triple warp speed. I can't even tell you what it's real name would be, you know, to get from one side of the Milky Way to the other. I'm assuming that making something as ambitious as this is always presenting problems or challenges for you to overcome. I'm curious if there was a particular new challenge that this film presented you that you had to put some real creative thought or technical problem solving in order to, in order to solve. Well, there were quite a few technical um challenges but not in a bad way first of all to if you're flying anything to orbit for the first time um, as with these two new digital cameras uh, you have to flight certify everything that flies up there so you have to these were off-the-shelf Canon cameras but you have to with NASA shake them and bake them and torture them in many ways to make sure nothing awful will happen when they get into that environment the biggest challenge for me was the 11 and a half terabytes of magical imagery that came back and selecting from that uh, 46 minutes of uh, film was quite a challenge. And did you get all that data back in one, in one go? Did you get it? Um, that was a, another challenge was uh, only because we had not done things this way before. Um, our data came down from the station on a KU band um, f direct from um, take the the, um, the cards, uh, load them into a computer, um, then they would come be sent down by KU band to the Johnson Space Center, take our left turn, uh, and it would come would go up on a secure site, and we would download them in Toronto, which meant that I could get them within a couple of days of things being shot. One camera, um, the Earth camera the high-res data came down direct. That was 250,000 frames came down direct at 5K. Uh, the motion-based camera uh, filmed, um, captured, uh, recorded, I should say, a um, HD proxy at the same time as it recorded the high-res data. And the high-res data went on to um, codex uh, solid-state drives. That that's what we had to bring back to Earth. Well, Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Remind everybody, please, uh, when A Beautiful Planet is out and when they should take their kids as well to see it. That's my pleasure to say that A Beautiful Planet will open in the UK on uh, Friday the 27th. That's this Friday. It will open in, in London at the Science Museum, at the BFI also, and at uh, IMAX Odeon Theatres. Check your local listings, as they say. The internet. <laughs> oh, the internet. Yes, I'm, I'm a creature of <laughs> the dark ages. Tony, my thank you so much. Thank you, Nate. It's been a pleasure. Well, before we end the show this week, now that everybody is freshly educated about the trials and joys of shooting three-dimensional IMAX 5K cinematography from a near-Earth orbiting spacecraft, I wanted to touch on a couple of emails that have landed into the text message mailbag over the last couple of weeks. The first comes from Andrew, and Andrew says, Hi, Nathan Ian. Hi, Andrew. Hi. 
Just a quick, that's amazing. We didn't even script that. <laughs> Just a quick note to say about my experiences with Android Pay. This follows on our conversation last week. I've been waiting for ages as my colleagues mainly use iPhones and have had iPay for a while. Last week, I downloaded the app and within about two minutes had everything registered. Very simple, painless. I used it an hour or so later. Again, great experience. A couple of points, says Andrew. My wife, a litmus test for tech, with no help from me, managed to install it just as easily and likewise with the use. If she can do it, I'm sure Ian won't have any issues, as long as your bank has pulled its finger out, which of course it hasn't because it's Well, I, I haven't tried again, to be honest, but um, I will do. The other thing, Andrew continues, which really surprised me was all of the places I used on Saturday were very bemused. No one had ever paid with a phone before. I do live in the north, in, Harrog- <laughs> in Harrogate, so not too backward. Now, I used to live not too far from Harrogate, and I have to say... It is very touristy in as much as if you want to go to a place that looks like 16th century England, that's one of the places to go. And they do fantastic jam. I can tell you that much. But whether or not you can pay for it with Apple Pay or Android Pay leaves something to be discovered. Thank you, Andrew, for letting us know that you and your wife have found it very easy to use Android Pay. Now, the next email comes from Alan, who I think was raising some eyebrows about our assertions that the BBC iPlayer should be held to some kind of gold standard um, after which all streaming services should follow. He writes, Nate, I was just listening to your latest episode when I heard you say, heard one of you say, you think BBC iPlayer raises the bar for other services. And I have to ask, where was it buried? More seriously, what incarnations of iPlayer have you been using? On every platform I have ever attempted to use it, they appear to have aimed for barely functional offering... offering often falling short of even this low target. Their desktop app, Windows, is terrible at actually doing subscriptions, or at least was before iOS gave up on it. The Android app has such a half-hearted implementation of Google Cast that you actually have to guess when the software has done all the loading in the background or attempted to play something will act as an instant request for a crash. This is even forgetting for a moment that just to play something in iPlayer on your device, you need to have completely separate BBC Media Player app installed for the indecipherable reason that it can't be rolled into the main iPlayer software. Alan continues to point out that they're pushing Android logins on the iPlayer far too heavily. Um, And one D-tap, or one tap apparently, delists, and a second to undo pops up a login screen again. By the way, if they haven't hobbled the app in this way, the login would be no benefit to me whatsoever, as I primarily use a single device for iPlayer content. If you get frustrated with this and decide you'll just plug your RSS reader into their feeds, you swiftly find out that the RSS feeds are only implemented along broad categories and are also useless at notifying you that a new episode of any series is out. This is quite the vitriol, isn't it, Ian? Yeah, it is. And I I do absolutely understand what he's saying. Um, Well, he has one more thing to say. Oh, okay, go on. Let him say that then. Here it comes. I've always said the quality of implementation of the iPlayer service has been poor, enough they'd never keep any subscribers commercially and i fear any implementation of a paywall that they come up with will be a complete disaster but he does end on love the show well so I, d- we- I don't agree that um it would be a commercial failure i mean I, I if you took the content that was on there now and offered it for five quid a month or something i i you know i really honestly believe it would be a roaring success um ignoring license fee issues um I take, I do take all the points. I think, you know, there's plenty of functionality stuff on there that could be worked on, I'm sure. I don't use any of it, honestly. I 
my experience with iPlayer is extremely simple. I go to a device with iPlayer on it, like my Roku. I type in the program I want. I'm away. I don't store favourites. Uh, I, you know, I don't use any of that advanced stuff. So for me, it works perfectly. I you see. I, I do use a lot of that advanced stuff, oh, okay. and I also find it works perfectly. Because, but it could just cut. It could just be because I've got used to it, or I'm tolerant. Um, or or I've just the fact that I only tend to use on Apple devices that the it tends to be quite consistent across those. Maybe Android is different, but I am curious, Alan, what is a good implementation of this sort of technology? Um, you know, Netflix often gets held up as a good way of doing. Netflix um, is very good, though, isn't it? It is good, but but it's you quite know, basic. I don't think it's more advanced than iPlayer particularly. Neither do I, but sometimes it's the subtleties that cause the, either the confusion or the appreciation. So I'm very curious, Alan, for you to get in touch again uh, for next week's show and let us know, um, based on how much you dislike these implementations of iPlayer that you, you've talked about, um, which do you like? Who does it well? Maybe we can we can see how that compares to the rest of the audience. That's going to do it for this week, though. Podcast at natelangson.com. That's where you can send your thoughts and feedback on anything we've talked about today, tomorrow, next week. Goodness knows. You can you can let us know any opinion you have. Ian, I have bathed in nothing but pleasure this week. I'm going to towel myself off. Likewise, Chief. I'm, I'm, uh, my paws are moist with the joy of success. Excellent. Well, while Ian and I go and shower, uh, separate showers, um, <laughs> Have a good week, everyone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.